You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Professor Tooley. I'm joined in this conversation by Professor James Tooley. He's the Vice-Chancellor at the University of Buckingham, interestingly, one of a very small number of private universities in the United Kingdom. He's also Professor of Educational Entrepreneurship and Policy at that university. Recent groundbreaking research on low-cost private education has won him numerous awards. His book based on this research, The Beautiful Tree, a personal journey into how the world's poorest are educating themselves, was a bestseller. He's co-founded chains of low-cost schools in Ghana, India, Honduras, and most recently in his native England. His work has featured in documentaries on American PBS television and the BBC. His latest book is Really Good Schools, Global Lessons for High-Caliber Low-Cost Education. James, thanks so much for giving us your time here in London. Thanks for inviting me. And I think what we're going to talk about will interest Australian parents. Uh, like parents everywhere, I think they see education as incredibly important. I think they probably worry a bit about the quality of that education sometimes and whether the kids are being taught to think or what to think. Yeah. I think they probably also now are starting to worry a little bit about the money they put into education at a tertiary level and whether they're good in getting good value. Mm. So can I start with something really basic? Right. Um, what is education exactly, and what's it supposed to do, okay. in your view, as an educator? So the way you've asked the question leads me to say, let's distinguish education from schooling or schooling or college or whatever. So let's make that distinction first. And education, it's a contested concept, but basically it has two distinct meanings, really. One is, if you like, preparation for adult life, whether that's adult life as a, in a democracy, adult life as a, a citizen, adult life as a parent, or adult life as a worker, is preparation for a flourishing, rewarding life. That's one tradition of education. An older tradition, which actually I think you'd be quite sympathetic to, but certainly I'm sympathetic to, and doesn't rule out the first, that the two can coexist. The second tradition would be initiation into the best that has been thought and said in the world. So it's in our, in our sort of, I think in our sort of examples, it would be initiation into Western culture or culture more generally, but with not ruling out an emphasis on certain areas there. So it's the best that's been thought and said in the world. That's education. Schooling is a vehicle for that, but Education can also take place outside of schooling. You know, when you and I read, or when perhaps listeners uh, are listening to this or, or watching this podcast now, um, that can be education. And in the past, in Victorian England, for example, actually, um, education could take place in pub reading rooms or pub discussions, or of course in the church, in the in the synagogue, and so on. So, distinguish those two and think of those two traditions, preparation for adult life and initiation into the best that's been thought and said. And your own institution, where you are now the Vice-Chancellor, mm. sounds really interesting. It's private, I understand. Uh, yeah. it was, it's quite new, it was set up by people who were looking for education that was free of outside interference, including by governments, yes. because 
those who pay the piper call the tune. Call yeah. the tune. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, yeah. Uh, that, and the I background of your university. I could carry on for ages about this, so you might want to stop me. But the University of Buckingham, it was the idea for it came from an Institute of Economic Affairs paper in 1969 called Towards an Independent University. And it was based around the idea that even back then, and of course now the situation is much worse, but even back then it was felt, particularly by some Oxford dons, that the, the state was encroaching too much on higher education. It was regulating too much. It was trying to influence it too much. And so the idea was, let's create a university that's totally independent of state funding. And therefore, naively, I'm afraid, they, they believed it would be totally independent of state regulation too. And so the idea came up in the late 60s. In 1973, the, the University College was formed. And in 1976, the University College at Buckingham was opened. And the matriculation speaker was one. Margaret Thatcher, and she, she, she gave an absolutely brilliant speech about themes relevant to this. Do you mind if I read, read that? That would be terrific, yeah. because she was actually quite a wordsmith. She was a wordsmith. <laughs> so Which she, reflected a deep thoughtfulness, yeah, I have to say. Deeply thoughtful, deeply thoughtful about the importance of the University of Buckingham at the time. So in 1976, remember, she was leader of the opposition, the first female leader of the opposition ever. Um, and she was, of course, about to become, in three years' time, the Prime Minister, the first female Prime Minister as well. But she said, um, to a free people accustomed to great richness of private initiative, there is something undesirable, indeed debilitating, about the present mood of the country in which so many look not to themselves or their fellows for new initiative, but to the state. And then she goes on, I, as a politician, must not prescribe to you. Independence, we must remember, is not a gift. It is not something that governments confer, but something that a free people enjoys and uses. And then finally, this last phrase here is, it's really powerful, I think, unless we are worthy and able to take advantage of a freedom not yet extinguished in our land, we shall become pale shadows like civilizations before us who were eventually thrust aside and dispossessed by more vigorous rivals. I think the speech is incredibly powerful. Those were a couple of excerpts from it. Um, but she believed in our university. After she became prime minister, while she was prime minister rather, we got our Royal Charter in 1983, the only private university to have that Royal Charter. And then when she was, she was pushed out of politics, wasn't she? When she resigned from politics in 1992, she was then our chancellor, our figurehead for seven years. And again, came frequently to our university, loved our university and, 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 um, and cherished this little beacon of freedom in the higher education world. <clears throat> And that beacon, I'm trying to keep alive. I've been in the role of Vice-Chancellor one and a half years now. Um, it's hard keeping this alive in the current climate, but I'm trying to keep that beacon for freedom alive, the beacon for celebrating you know, the, the best that's thought and been thought and said in our culture. Um, and yeah, so that, that's the University of Buckingham. It's a small university, small private, but with a great tradition. 
And I'm trying to create a Margaret Thatcher chair for freedom, democracy, and the rule of law, I'm going to call it, um, to keep those traditions, the traditions that I just read to you, really, alive. Let's divide out then the, the two issues uh, that yeah. immediately come to my mind. The first is, um, that we'll come back to, yeah. uh, does being independent of government in this day and age give you any freedom? But the second one is, the raging debate in America, and we see a lot of echoes of it in Australia, and I'm sure you do in Britain, about the degree to which parents should have the right to determine what their children are taught, yeah. and the state intervening. And yeah. you see it particularly with some of the woke issues in America where uh, you've recently seen uh, a governorship of a state change because yeah. the parents agreed with somebody who they would not normally have agreed with politically uh, who said Still that yeah. um, it mounted the charge that parents should know and should have say over what their children are taught versus the existing government who said, no, uh, parents shouldn't always know. Yeah. It's extraordinary, isn't it? You know, it is to me. Yeah, yeah. And we'll look at that's the second part of it. Um, I, actually, um, when the state first intervened in education in this country, it, it did a little bit from 1833 onwards, but primarily it intervened from 1870 onwards. And there were numerous, there, 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 was, there were surveys, but there was a very powerful survey called the Newcastle Commission Report, named after Lord Newcastle. It was published in 1861, I think, did the survey in 1858 and it found that the vast majority of children were in school um, 95 percent or something like that um, for i think it's about six years 5.7 years and some of these uh, a lot of these parents were of course sending their children to um, church schools a lot of the very poor were in the ragged the philanthropic philanthropic schools. Lord Shaftesbury's work, I think. Exactly. But there was also this category of for-profit schools. That was the right. category that was there. And those were sort of low-cost private schools set up as initiatives. But why I mentioned this in this context was the commissioners, you know, the good and the great of Victorian England, and I'm sure they were good and great and well-meaning, they couldn't understand why parents were sending their children to these for-profit schools rather than the church schools and so on. And they, they wrote disparagingly about these poor parents who know nothing. They want to be in control. They want accountability. They want their children to be learning the things that will get them work, not the things they can learn in Sunday school. And they're going to Sunday school anyway, or going to church. And it was, it's, it's, I, I wish I had the quotes for you, but they're very, it's very interesting the way these good and the great didn't understand, even back in 1870, 1860, why poor parents would want control. And fast forward to what you've just said now, it's a disgrace. You know, schools, state schools, governments got involved with education in loco parentis. That was, that was the phase. Only we're doing it because parents need to work, parents are doing other things. And so we are acting in the role, in, you know, for the parents. And slowly, you, you know, the whole thing about, about the role of the state is, as you know, I mean, it can be explained in various ways, but once you give a little bit of control to the state, it gets more and more control, more and more control, the institutional bias will lead to the sort of thing you described in America, the sort of thing we're seeing in Australia and England, where the state doesn't care what parents want for their children, dismisses it, just like the commissioners did in 1860. 
dismisses what they want. And so you get things that I think in future years, people look back and say, well, that's barbarism, what you inflict on children. And uh, this is yeah. very interesting, you see. Yeah. Um, Frank Ferruti talks about the emergence of an expertocracy, mm. you know, a sort of um, elite that thinks they know best. Yes. And weak governments, high turnover of ministers, cabinets not in control, all of that sort of stuff. They say, well, we know how to run the place anyway, and so it doesn't matter who's actually in the halls of power any given day. We'll run the place. So you're saying right back in a you know late uh, yeah. uh, 1850s, 1860s, yeah, Newcastle report, yeah. you had people then saying they know better. See, one of the things I yeah, learned in yeah. 20 years in public life yeah. was never, never equate education and even intelligence with wisdom. Mm. You'd meet people in the back blocks, as we call it in Australia, yeah. who yeah. were as wise as any academic I ever met. Yeah. And, and they see the importance of ensuring their kids are given the tools with which yes, to think and yes, learn, but yes. not told what's right and wrong by a bureaucrat. That's for mum and dad. Yeah. And if mum and dad want to seek advice, of course they can. You know, mm. if, if there was a, a, a liberated system of education outside of the state, mm. of course there would be which mm. education. There would be mm. guides to you know, how to educate best, where to go, what, to, mm. what facilities to use, what resources. So, you know, it's not saying that mum and dad don't need advice or don't benefit from it, but they can talk to their, their siblings, their parents, their, you know, everyone can come in with that advice. You don't need the state to come in. Yeah, an expertocracy, I suppose that's valid. That's a useful phrase, but I, that's in a sense, yeah, is there a conspiracy or is this just a, a gross thing that's emerged because you've given power at one stage to people and their power, you know, people like to expand power, don't they? And bureaucrats are the same as anyone else. They want it's to a great battle in democracy yeah, to make yeah. certain that the power doesn't end up in the wrong place, that yeah. governments are downstream of culture. And that brings us back to the next issue. So your university was set up as a private institution so that it would be free of government interference. Yeah. And a lot of parents would think, well, that's why I'm sending my kid to a private school, because I want to ensure that it's not the state dictating what my yeah. children will be taught. I'm looking for a higher standard of independent thinking and instruction and what have you. And in Australia, you know, you're talking very high numbers of parents are still opting for private schools and they'll stretch themselves financially to do it. Yeah. I'm often wondered why uh, supporters of the state system are not more challenged by the idea that there's a judgment being passed. Yeah. <laughs> they want a higher standard. But the, the real question arises, does that independence yeah. from government funding, uh, on paper at least, do, do, does it really mean that you're getting a, a genuinely high quality independent education? And the answer unfortunately is no. Um, or, or at least if I understood mm. where I thought you were going with the question was, does, does independence of government funding lead to yes. independence of government regulation? Yep. Yep. And it doesn't. Mm. And this was, in a sense, the naivety of people yep. back you know, in the 60s and 70s when they were yep. thinking of my university. Um, and the, the same thing applies to schools. So we, we have, we're governed by the 2017 Higher Education Research mm. Act which set up a body called OFS, the Office for Students. And our private university, um, there are 24 regulations or sets of regulations that universities, all universities have to meet. Um, our private university, or, or 
so-called public universities have to meet. Us, our private university has to meet 21 of those 24 regulations. Now, the three that we've, the, so we have three freedoms, if you like, from other universities. They are precious and they are, you know, they're important. But it's amazing how the government feels it has a right, even on a, in a university that's not in the receipt of public funding, to regulate. And the same goes with schools. I, we may talk about this later, but I set up this low-cost private school in Durham, in, in a city in the north of England, northeast of England, and um, it took us 465 days to get registered to meet, you know, show we're meeting the regulations. We then had to have various inspections and there are so many rules and regulations that even a private school completely independent of state funding, and of course at that stage saving the state from funding kids, they have to meet an amazing range of regulations as well. So it is government wants control of education for whatever reason, and government controls, regulates much more than I believe is appropriate. And, and once you start doing that, of course, then you can regulate in different ways. You know, in England, we have the new relationship and sex education, which is definitely, in my view, overstepping the mark um, in terms of what government should be able to prescribe in any school, but particularly a private school, definitely taking away the role of parents in initiating their children as they see best, as, as they see fit in terms of their religious and philosophical beliefs and values initiating into ideas on sex and relationships. Overstepping the mark, but once you allow government to, it's going to carry on overstepping the mark, but even in private schools. Yeah. To tease this out a little bit more, <clears throat> I think my observation would be that there's a greater diversity of views uh, and less political correctness in, in the private system in Australia, yeah. but they could do a lot better. Yes. Now, an academic I respect greatly in Australia suggested to me that part of the problem is the selection process, that even in the private uh, universities, academics will tend to choose people who align. Yeah. Uh, and so if you take uh, the broad figures, as I understand them in this country, around 50% of people would decide, that would self-describe as conservative-leaning. Mm. And, and around 50% left of centre. Mm. Uh, it's not so very different in Australia. But if you look at academia and those who teach, almost none identify as yeah, anything other small, than yeah. left of centre. Yeah. Uh, and so they select other academics and yeah. other teachers and other tutors yeah. who fit with their, their worldview. Yeah. And so there's this cry for diversity, but it often doesn't extend to diversity of thinking. Is that? It's yes. a sensitive question. You may not want to answer it, but I'm just interested in your views. No, and you felt it's you could And it wasn't always thus. You know, mm. if you go back 50 years to look at academics, they were much more representative of political mm. views in the country at large. And it's not that there's no conservative academics, but they are small in number and small in percentage. And, you know, in a way, what you've described is, you know, a very human response, isn't it? Yes, I, it know, is. It's know, understandable. We're appointing people and mm. yeah, someone... But that doesn't to, make it a good thing. No, it doesn't make it a good thing. But so what's, what's the alternative here? And for me, one can go the wrong way. What, what, those, what did Ronald Reagan say? He said, what's the, the eight most frightening words in the English language? I'm, I'm from the government, the government and, and I'm, I'm here, here to help, help you. you. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> so you could say, oh, let's government help us yeah. get those diversity of political and philosophical views in the university. And... I think that's largely mistaken. There might be a place for government, you know, to ensure that you can't be hounded out. 
because of academic, you know, uh, f f because you're overstepping what the community says you should be talking about. You know, you're engaged in academic freedom and free speech. So there's probably some government role there. I'm not denying that. But do we, I value institutional autonomy and the universities are, universities are proud universities of the past, used to value institutional autonomy. They're now giving up so much of that, but let's not regulate them more. Uh, you know, I, I much prefer to see a, a sort of, as it were, a grassroots revolution, you know, people like us talking and encouraging ac the academic institutions to become places of free speech and academic freedom and tolerance and acceptance and even celebration of different political and philosophical views. That's, that's a struggle we have. But don't let's get government doing this, I don't think. Yeah. Well, you're playing to sympathetic ears yeah, on my yeah, part. I, yeah. I'm a profound believer yeah. that government in a democracy should be downstream of culture. Exactly. Yeah. And in the end, culture will always be driven by people's beliefs and values. Yeah. You know, the nation of Britain is no more than the sum total of the Britons who make it up. Mm. Same of Australia. What do they think? How do they see things? Yeah. And in a democracy, they've got to be free to go where they want. But, but. Um, government should be responsive to that rather than trying to dictate yeah. as a broad principle. Yeah. Um, tell me about the universities in this country, in your view. Are we pumping too many of our young people into our universities? Uh, are we yeah. under-emphasising, you know, the satisfying life and, and, and financial rewards of um, the opportunities that are available for those who don't go to universities? Yeah. I think you're right. In fact, Tony Blair was uh, in the news on the weekend, I think, on the bank holiday weekend, just gone um, talking about we need 70% of young people going into university now. Um, he set the target at 50%, which I think has been reached now. He now wants to go to 70%. And uh, I, I, I looked up, because, and he said this would solve the skills shortage, solve the productivity problem in, in, in the UK. If you look up where the skill shortages are, Things like welding come up, plumbing, um, software, you know, engineering, mechanical engineering, you know, they could well be catered for by people in the universities, or they could equally well be catered by people doing short, focused courses in those areas. But a lot of where the skill shortages are not things that will be produced by universities um, doing courses that have questionable purchase in the future. Now, I'm not against people pursuing courses for the sake of the love of the subject. You know, it's great that people want to study philosophy and history and um, for the love of the subject, and they can use it elsewhere in, in, in their future lives, but they are enriched by it. But there's a lot of courses where people are thrown inferior content, inferior substance, and don't really benefit from it, in my view, and gain lots of negative things like negative work habits, negative views on our culture and our civilization. So these things happen. But yeah, I, I, I think go with where, where you are. University is great. I'm a vice chancellor. Of course, I want to encourage people to come to university and we do great courses, law, you know, business, humanities, social science, medicine, all these things are wonderful to attract people to if it's right for you. But if you are really practical and think, actually, I want to be an electrician or a plumber or a welder, my guess is you're going to be much more successful if you follow that route, become an apprentice, create a small business, which can grow into a bigger business, 
than if you go the university route where you might end up with a pretty inferior degree from a not so great university and at best become a pretty unfulfilled, dissatisfied middle manager. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think the answer is yes, we are, we are pushing people, too many people into university. There are many ways of becoming fulfilled and prosperous and, uh, and flourishing human beings. You touched on something there, which is the passing on of ideology. It often seems, I think, to the person in the street that our universities are encouraging their students, particularly in the humanities, but not only in the humanities, mm. towards even antipathy even towards our own culture, our own heritage. Yeah. There's a lack of knowledge of the good things we've achieved and an extraordinary emphasis on the times we've got it wrong. We see it, I think, in the destaturing movement around the place. Yeah. There's a lack of contextualization and a lack of yes. understanding yeah. that people lived in different eras, a lack of celebration of heroes who've set out to change the world, a lack of recognition that actually, if you want to change the world, you'd better hope that you're in a free and liberal and democratic society, not an autocratic one. Yes, I mean, one would hope that universities would be the bulwark here, wouldn't they? They would be the ones who want people to see all sides of an argument, want people to be able to engage in an argument and recognize, yeah, strengths and weaknesses of arguments, but strengths and weaknesses of what people have done in the past. I mean, I always think universities should be engaged in what you might call Hegelian dialectic, isn't it? You know, you have, you have a thesis, you then have an antithesis or antithesis, and then you have a synthesis, you know, you, so you engage in that debate all the time. And you don't just, I mean, you don't just present one view all the time. One of the virtues of free speech and academic freedom is precisely that knowledge grows and you can veer towards the truth or as close as you can get to the truth through that, that, that debate. And you're right, I, 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 think, I think you're right. Universities are becoming, rather than these bastions of that development of knowledge and aspiring to the truth, they are becoming much more restricted and saying, this is the truth, you better believe it. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. Now, I haven't got chapter and verse for you there, but I think it's probably true. One's, one's sort of sense, one's anecdotal sense suggests that's true. One of the interesting developments to me, apart from the sheer number of people going into universities, young people, is that there's been uh, quite a significant very significant ramp up of the a number of women going into university. My grandmother yeah. uh, in Australia uh, around 1907 or 8 graduated into medicine and her family said, no, you can't do that. We need you to do something else. Yeah. Look after the younger kids because she was the eldest. I mean, those days are gone and that is terrific. And in fact, in that field in Australia, there are more girls now graduating in medicine than there are boys. Um, but that's true overall. I wonder whether we now don't have a problem with a lot of boys underperforming. Yeah. Any observations that, uh, that you would make along those lines? Yeah. First of all, it's to endorse what you said, that I'm a freedom lover mm. and it, I want Absolutely. individuals to be free to choose yeah. their lifestyles and their, their futures. And uh, this, we, are, we enable mm. women and men to be yeah. able to do that now. So that's very important. The second thing is, yeah, it, it actually reflects a little bit on what I said earlier about, you know, if you're an expert and your, your hands being a plumber, electrician or welder may actually be 
better for you than mm. going into higher education. Um, and, and, and so first of all, I want to say, you know, let's be very clear. It may be that boys, young men, are making very rational choices. They see actually there's a big debt mm. I get if I go to university and I'm not particularly, I don't particularly like academic work. Mm. I'm not particularly enthusiastic about it. And actually I'd perhaps rather just go out of, you know, get out of the, the, the treadmill of schooling, go and do a business, go and do, edu- you know, go and do, start my own business, become an apprentice or whatever. So there could be a very rational explanation here. So it may not be without further, you know, mm. unpicking of this, it may not be a problem or it may only be partially a problem for some young men. But that, that said, I think um, certainly there, there are certain, that there is a problem with particular groups of young men just getting out of schooling altogether. I was there talking about perhaps going into higher education, but you know, maybe men making, not making that decision is a good thing for some. But dropping out of schooling altogether before you become literate and numerate and functionally illiterate and functionally numerate, that's another issue, isn't it? And, and maybe there's a problem with low expectations of certain groups of boys, and it's particularly white working class boys are a big problem now. Yeah, white working massive class problem boys. in America. Yeah, massive Millions. problem. Millions, literally, uh, yeah. we know from the research, just dropping out. Yeah, and maybe, you know, maybe we, we shouldn't wash our hands of this and say, fine, yeah. it's okay. We should actually say, why, what's happening here? Maybe it, it, the feminists in the 1970s, when I was growing up, they were all about make girl-friendly schooling, you know, making schools girl-friendly. There's a book by that title, I think girl-friendly schooling, I remember very well. Maybe we've made them too girl-friendly. And maybe we want to think about how we make some aspects boy-friendly. That there are differences. There are differences in the yeah. way they learn. Yeah, um, mm. and on, this is on average, and of course you can find you know, individuals, boys who behave more like the girl average and vice versa. But, you know, exams are one sort of thing. Boys, or the, the boy average, or, um, typically likes that high pressure, and you know, all, uh, you know, summative exam at the end of things where there's so much pressure you've got to do really well and get and focus on that time. And you can be a bit relaxed the rest of the time. The average girl, you know, the, the, the data shows don't like that high stress, high value exam at the end, but prefer, you know, shorter nuggets, shorter, um, you know, continuous assessment and so on. And maybe, to be fair, you've got to have both systems, maybe the choice between both systems. Um, so, so, you know, I think there could be a problem, but let's not mm. jump to conclusions before we examine, you know, it, it problem in all its nuance. Now, let's change gears and come mm. to something that uh, you're very passionate about and yes. you're widely recognised for having been extremely effective at, and that's the whole question of um, affordable non-state schooling. How, what, what's really driven your, your interest? I mean, you've You've gone to some pretty dangerous places to see what's actually happening with children's education in developing countries. You've yeah. been into war-torn countries, developing countries, mm. inhospitable places. Yeah. Uh, and you spent a lot of time looking at these inexpensive private schools. Yeah. We know great progress is being made. We're so into self-flagellation in our societies now that we sometimes fail to recognise the good we've been able to do. Yeah. What yes. drove your interest? Yeah. So... Um, you're right, I've been to some of the most dangerous places in, on, on this planet. Um, South Sudan in the Civil War, um, Honduras in the middle of gang warfare, Sierra Leone, Liberia, parts of Nigeria, 
are pretty dangerous. Um, I often felt like Daniel in the lion's den, that I was committed to doing this work and I never, I never felt at risk. And there were often times when I could have been at risk, um, but in the end it was okay. There's a little story from Honduras. I don't know if this is relevant, but I was going into some of these very poor, um, what would you call them anyway, favelas, I guess you call them in Honduras. And this one was part of the, is it Gang 18 or Gang 3 territory and signified by the tennis shoes are thrown over all the wires. Yeah. And I drove in with my companion who showed me around Pedro. And I was in an old car, I shut the door and I thought, oh no, I've shut the car key inside. <laughs> Locked and you know, it's an old car, so I couldn't yeah. get in. You know, he said, "Don't worry." He called over one of the gang members who came and broke into my car in about five minutes and gave me the key. So I thought, well, actually, they could have done that any day. Yeah. So clearly, something's going on. And then we went and, and in this community centre, I was with all the mothers there, and we were celebrating the future opening of a school there, a low-cost private school, which we can talk about in a second. But um, and then Pedro took a photograph and when he, he sent it to me, he pictured, he said, did you see the guy behind you? And it's one of the, it's a gang member doing all this sort of complicated signals with his hand. And I, I get, so the gangs knew I, I was there, but I guess these signals didn't mean, well, they meant nice things about Professor Tooley, not nasty things. So that, that was, that was so complex. But these low-cost private schools, I discovered them. And I use that word advice. I discovered them, as it were, for myself, but also for the West in India 20 odd years ago. And no one had described this phenomenon before that, you know, when you think of the poor, they must be going to government schools or they must be going to uh, well, government schools or, or out of school. And my work discovered that actually these kids were not out of school. Typically, they were in school. They were in low cost private schools. And these schools were set up by typically by, by entrepreneurs in the communities, used by the very poor, affordable by the very poor, outperforming the government schools and doing so you know, in, a, in a scalable, sustainable fashion. So this was a huge revolution to me. I mean, I, I was so excited about this. I almost, almost felt it was like an epiphany for me. I had this moment where I'd become, for various reasons, I, my PhD was about private education. I'd had experience as a young man, as a teacher in Zimbabwe, in my 20s and somehow I was bringing all those things together and realizing that actually my concern for the poor you know if you're concerned with private education well that's about the rich my concern for the poor I was able to see that I was able to move forward with private education for them and since then I've discovered this phenomenon across the developing world gone to someone and, and I actually wanted to go to the most difficult places because people would say oh you found this phenomenon in Ghana Lagos Nigeria Kenya, India, those are not difficult places. I had a you know, headline saying how the world's poorest are educating themselves. Those are not the world's poorest. So I went looking for the world's poorest in South Sudan, Sierra Leone, Liberia, and was able to show the same phenomenon there. The majority of kids in private schools outperforming those left behind the government schools. And, real, and, and, and most relevant to our discussion, our early discussion, this was showing, again, or questioning, why do you need the state involved in education? If the world's poorest are eschewing state education, if they are unwilling to acquiesce in the mediocrity of state education, then that brings into question, surely, 
why you need the state involved in education at all. And so that is sort of almost like a circle back to where we were before, questioning the role of the state in education. You don't need it. You don't need it for the poorest people on the planet. Well, that sets up plenty of questions, I've got to yeah. say, in my mind. Yeah. Uh, firstly, let's uh, some numbers. Uh, I understand from your research, 70 to 80% of urban poor children in sub-Saharan Africa yeah. and South Asia go to private school. Exactly. 70 to 80%. Yeah. And it's also estimated that there's 450,000 of these schools in India mm-hmm. and 14,000 in uh, Lagos um, yeah. and Nigeria. Yeah, Lagos yeah. State alone. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. State, Lagos yeah. State alone. Yeah, yeah. sorry. In yeah. other words, they're everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and and uh, I guess the answer to the question is why are parents choosing them? It's because yeah. they get better outcomes. Yes. But how does an entrepreneur in these really poor areas make this work from an economic point of view, James? Yeah. I mean, yeah. they're poor areas. By definition, they haven't got much money. The parents, like parents everywhere, will make big sacrifices yeah. to get their kids yeah. into these schools. Yeah. And then presumably those entrepreneurs actually have to be able to evidence that you bring my kid here, your kid here. I'll outperform. I'll yes. give you a better product than you'll get yeah. in the. Yeah. So, so critics of this, you know, and those sort of mm. critics of this work would tend to be those critics of everything we've talked about earlier, you know, in terms of mm. our ambition for universities and so on. But critics of this sort of work say, well, parents are being hoodwinked. Okay. They think private is better, so they'll they'll you know they scrimp and save, and they'd be hood- hoodwinked by unscrupulous mm. business people. The research doesn't. The research shows the opposite. So, really? and it's not just my research. Research after research shows these schools are outperforming the, the the government schools. So, very importantly, parents are not being hoodwinked. They are making rational choices about what is best for their children. This is, and how do they find out? Well, it's in the tried and tested ways parents find out. If you're poor, you talk to your friends, you talk to your mother, you talk to your brothers and siblings, and they will tell us. What makes for good education? Now you're. Well, it just comes back to this point yeah. we were talking about earlier. So often the expertocracy or the yeah, elites, yeah, whatever you yeah, want to yeah. talk about it, is so patronising that they assume uh, that somehow or other they know best and mistake this great essential that I think I learned in all my years in public life, which is that <laughs> learning is not necessarily acquainted with wisdom. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And But the fundamental point is there, you know, so so many experts, now the, now we're talking about experts in the development yeah. industry, if you like, um, they come along and they accuse me and, you know, people who are doing this sort of work, you know, you're, you're first of all, pretending that parents are better served, but you are, you are undermining the public system yeah. by allowing the majority of parents in urban areas to go into these schools. And I would say to any one of these um, these experts, you look a parent in the eye, a poor parent who's nothing, very little, who's got one chance for their little Johnny or little Susan to go to school, and you tell them you can't go to the private school, then you, you're making the wrong choice, and actually you've got to go to this school, which you've already rejected. You've rejected that government school, that public school. You're going over here because you realize it's better for you. And all the evidence shows it's better. Um, so it's an extraordinary revolution, but ties into what we're saying about parents knowing best, parents wanting accountability. Why are these schools better? Because they're accountable to the parents. The schools know, you know, they, they, they run on tight budgets. I've run a few of these schools. I know how tight their budgets are. Um, that if two or three parents take their children out, the school's non-viable as a business. So instead of waiting for those parents to take their children out, 
you make sure that the parents are satisfied with what you're delivering. High quality, typically academic education, knowledge-based education, and uh, you, you make sure that's provided so that you don't lose your business, you don't go out of business. So what motivates the people who set these schools up? Is it profit? Is it philanthropy? Is it compassion? Yeah. Is it a mixture of all three? Or do you yeah. get some it's, who do it for profit, some who yeah. do it out of compassion? Yeah. What, what drives them? So, so, so it's a mixture of all those, but typically, so, so here's the figures from the slums of Monrovia in Liberia, 61% mm -hmm. are what you might call for-profit schools. Mm -hmm. Actually, in fact, this is not typical. This is just figures mm. from Liberia. 61% uh, um, for-profit and the other 39% a mixture of church, uh, church, community philanthropy and mosque. Okay. And why it's not typical is typically that 60% figure is slightly higher in other places. You know, there are fewer church, mosque or whatever schools. But, but they're for-profit. But let's, let's distinguish, be careful of that term. What it means is if I'm an entrepreneur in a poor area, I can set up a school and I will be able to provide for my family. You know, I can extract a surplus to provide for my family. This is not profiteering and they're not making massive profits, giving it to shareholders. They're able to provide, make a living out of this. So that's very important to stress. And what sort of people do it? You know, you might, I, I see three different groups. So often you have a mum who will, um, she will be quite, more educated herself or see the value of school and so she starts a little kindergarten for you know she's got three kids herself she tells the neighbor bring your kids in she's got a dozen kids starts a kindergarten and then when the kids are ready to go to grade one the other mums or dads say they're happy with you i'm sure grade one isn't that different from kindergarten or reception whatever you want to call it why don't they stay with you and so a school is grown from the bottom up as it were Another typical way a school might start is from the top down where the kids are getting ready for the national exams and they, they're in a cramming class, they're in a sort of class where you know, they get primed for the exams and the kids will tell the teacher, well, look, we're, we're learning more from you than we are at school. Why don't we come with you full time? And so a school has grown from the top down. But there are people now who see, ah, oh, schools are a successful way to create a small business you know, that I can run, provide for my family. So there are people now just come in because they see it as a, as a possible option in, in poor areas. To come back to my own country, where more than one in three children are now educated in the private sector yeah. in Australia, more than one in three. Yeah. Um, they do, most of those private sectors, depending on the schools, uh, they do get some government funding. Yes. No. Uh, one argument would be that, yes, they get some government funding, but it's still saving the taxpayer a lot of money yeah. because the bulk of the contribution of the, the cost of those schools comes from the parents. Um, but the other argument that's run all the time, that's very interesting, and I'd be interested in your views on, because I'm sure you hear echoes of this everywhere in the world, is, oh, well, yes, that's because the public sector's underfunded. If you just pump more money in, <laughs> you'll get the results you're yeah. looking for and you can close all these terrible private schools. Yeah. And that's sometimes driven by ideology. We want them in the state yeah. system yeah. to make sure that they're brought up politically correctly. Yes, I mean, I think that's probably a reason. You know, again, it's quite hard to prove that, but it does look like you know, if kids are in a state system, they are much easier to control than if they're in an anarchic, libertarian, private sector. I don't want to sound anti-state school. I'm not. No. 
I'm seriously I understood. not. Understood. They have an incredibly important yeah. role to play. Yeah. Uh, but I just think some of the arguments around them yes. are wrong. Yeah. But but on on that resource thing. So forget what I've been doing in Africa, South Asia, and so on, Central America. Yeah. C- come to England. So I've I've set up. So inspired by my work overseas, people would say, "Why doesn't such a thing happen in England mm-hmm. or America or Australia?" When I've given mm-hmm. talks in all three places and three places, and people have said, "Why isn't it happening?" And so a few years back, I set up a low-cost private school in the northeast of England, city of Durham. And our, our fees are £3,000 a year, which is roughly one half of the per capita funding in the state primary schools. One half. There's about 6,000 yeah. funding in the state primary schools. Per child. Per child. What age? Because in Australia, so, it would so vary this, between primary and secondary. Yeah. So this this is this is you know from four to eleven, twelve, that mm-hmm. sort of age. Um, and um, how do you do it? Well, we can do it. And, and the point I'm trying to make is, so our school has been classified by the state inspector as a good, you know, which is a high flying school, satisfied the inspectors, loved by parents. Brilliant testimonials from the parents, some of whom are, incidentally, state school teachers. Um, and we can do it. We, we, we have broken even this year. And I, I wanted, to, in a way, to prove the philosophical point. I wasn't interested in making money. And perhaps to make money, you'd need the fees slightly higher. But nonetheless, for half of what per capita funding in the state sector, you can deliver a high-quality education. So. I mean, that's just one example, but I think it's pretty... So you're packing far too many kids into a classroom? 20. <laughs> so very low. Yeah. You're not cheating on that front? You're not cheating on that front. We have... You've got the teachers on starvation wages? They're paid pretty good wages. Yeah. And certainly there's no shortage of teachers want to come. They're operating in a slum? <laughs> no. I'm mean, ever you know, yeah. yeah. no, substandard it's, it's, building. It's actually a very nice building. And right. if it was substandard, the inspectors would have closed its ages ago. Yeah. So, you know, in a sense, this is, this is the business model we're talking about, but yeah. it's possible to do. And, and I mean, a simple rule, of, I mean, you can, you can do it in your head. 20, teacher, 20 students times £3,000 is £60,000 per class. The teachers on £30,000, it's £30,000 left for the rest of you know, resourcing and there's, as it were, mm. the amount that goes into running the school. And that is enough to break even. And... You class. people very keen to get their children into it. So you've got yeah. the numbers you need. Yeah, it's a very small school, but we do have a waiting list now. And I want to, I'm Vice Chancellor of the University of Buckingham, as you said. So at the moment, I don't have time to focus on these other aspects, but I'm, I'd very much like to expand that. But perhaps most importantly, I'd like to see others emulating this. I do get calls from time to time from people saying, we're interested in this. You know, perhaps we can start something similar in the south of England or somewhere else in the Midlands. Mm. And I, I would like to see that happen. Because for me, it's all part of the whole discussion we've having is I don't believe the state has this role in education, certainly not the role it has today. And this is all about sort of wrestling bits of the education system away from the state. And low-cost private schools, which do a, 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 you know, extend the private education sector away from just the elite, the, you know, the middle classes, the low middle classes, can access this education, that to me seems to be the right way forward to show alternatives to the state. 
when we were in government in Australia, we introduced a funding package known as the new schools policy. Yeah. So what we took was weighted average indexes of parents based on postcode areas and the Australian Bureau of Statistic numbers to get a handle on, on what parents could afford to pay in any given area and then funded the school on that basis, um, yeah. which actually created a lot more choice in education. Yes, yes. Um, it's a but very important word. It was an interesting yeah. model. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, now, now you would, in many ways, I think, describe yourself as a classic liberal, and what I'm driving at is that choice is very important. And I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, you would see a strong sort of civic element to a community being, if you like, um, um, you know, one in which you've got strong institutions which mediate between the individual and the state. You yeah. know, it's schools, it's churches, families, religious it's churches, religious. it's sporting clubs, it's volunteer organisations. Even pubs. <laughs> Even pubs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and these sort of understandings are breaking down. But it seems uh, where I join with you on that is that I think that's an important role in checking the reach and the pervasiveness of government. Yeah. A strong civil society will neither want nor long tolerate big government interference. Yeah. yeah, that's part of what drives you, I take it. And as a subset of that... That's all right. <laughs> and and as, a, as a subset of that question, in a sense, COVID, where you've seen a lot of parents yeah. become much more engaged in their children's education. They've been running school around the kitchen table, probably very yeah. frustrated by it, beginning to wonder just what's happening in their schools. Yes. No, so I agree with you about the importance of institutions as, mm. as it were a, 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 a filling the gap mm. between individuals and families in the state. And I, I totally agree with you on their importance. And as I say, I think you can see them in these institutions in many, many different aspects of life. Um, but yeah, COVID or the lockdowns around COVID were interesting, weren't they? Because a couple of things did happen. So, so one was the the evidence, I think all the evidence I've seen shows that the private schools were much better at keeping tabs on the, the kids. And, and, and I, I think a large number of kids have actually been lost from the system altogether, presumably in, who were going to the state sector and the state schools didn't keep tabs on them. You know, it was, the, the data shows that the private schools were giving whole days worth of lessons much more frequently than the state schools on average, of course. So that's, that's one important thing that a bit of evidence that came out of this. But secondly, as you say, a lot of parents realized that, well, they saw some of the curriculum, some of the lessons that mm. were going on at schools when they were downloaded or you know, when they saw them in their books and questioned some of the material and questioned a way that made many parents think, perhaps I don't want to be sending my children to that school anymore. Maybe I can be homeschooling. Homeschooling apparently has boomed in America. Yes, data. Mm -hmm. My guess is in England and Australia too. Mm -hmm. So many parents were saying, let's look at homeschooling rather than these alternatives. Um, or, or indeed hybrid models. Um, you've got these things called micro schools now, which are in a sense are groups of home homeschoolers coming together to create a micro school, uh, employing a teacher and so on creating a small school. So I, I think this is too early to say whether well, this is a permanent development or will be quick, swiftly sort of moved on as, as we get away from 
lockdowns and so on. But uh, it's worth watching that space, definitely. Because it's, again, it's bringing in this idea of parents who are in charge of their children's education, wanting to assert more control, wanting to have that choice, and actually sometimes not liking the choices they've been given within the state sector. It's a very important development, I think. I'd like to come back to universities. Mm. Now, you are a very respected uh, vice chancellor who, you know, a lot of credit to your name for groundbreaking research. And you're heading up a university that's very widely acclaimed. In an age when there is, I'd have to say, increasing and rising concern about the lack of diversity of viewpoints on campuses, can I ask you, firstly, in generic terms, what do you think can be done to encourage more diversity yeah. generally and specifically whether you have any thoughts on what you've been able to do yeah. on your own campus? Well, can I come it the other way? The other way. So, yes, yeah, so start, yeah. start from... So, so for instance, um, there was a, a report published in the UK by Dr. Tony Sewell on race and diversity in various... Mm areas of life, including education, and um, the, the impact of diversity on achievement in education and, and so on and so forth. And um, the report was published and lockdown was just ending in England. So I immediately invited Dr. Tony Saw to come and give a talk to us in Buckingham about his findings. I wrote an article for The Spectator on this theme to show a academics can write this sort of thing that many are nervous about writing, you know, writing this sort of content, but nonetheless, I was able to do that, invite him, and we had a discussion. Many people disagreed profoundly with what he said. It, it was done in the way that universities should do these things in a scholarly, congenial, even convivial fashion, and we all were able to put forward our positions and, uh, uh, and, and come to some conclusions or realize more work was needed to think these things through. So that's, that's a very simple, it was, Elementary, dear Watson, is what you can do there. A controversial report is published, invite the speaker to present it and discuss it. Elementary, but profoundly important because we were one of the few universities that did that. Other universities, the University of Nottingham, for example, was going to give the same guy, Dr. Terry Sewell, an honorary doctorate. They withdrew it because of the controversy around his report which actually was you know, soundly based on social science statistics. Can I ask, was it withdrawn at the insistence of the student body or part of the student body? It was withdrawn and then it was justified that this would upset the students. But was that the reason? I doubt it. I doubt it very much. I think the, the academic body was, was nervous. And in a way, rightly so, because there is this problem with the universities, isn't there, of not being able to do what I just said universities should do. Controversial speaker or, or, or a speaker with content that some deem controversial, bring him or her along. Let's talk about it. Let's come to some, you know, have some discussion points, points that we need further evidence on and so on. So that, you know, that's elementary, isn't it? But that's the, that's the important thing. And if, if universities, so that's the simple thing that I did, but if universities did that more often, then there would be better places. Um, the, the, the same for, you know, we've got books being published that one can bring those people to talk about the book rather than cancel them or say you can't come. Um, 
I, so so th those are various things. One of the things I think I mentioned earlier, I want to raise money for a Margaret Thatcher chair because of Margaret's incredible history with the university, a Margaret Thatcher professorship, a Margaret Thatcher centre or institute. That will encourage that diversity of opinion because there'll be money there. We can attract some great people to come in and you know, be in that centre, be the professor or the research fellows. We can get some great work going, which is encapsulating that diversity of views, both political, philosophical, ideological. But that said, at my university, we have a centre for Cuban studies. We have a centre for UN studies. We, so we're not, it's not as if we're pushing out, as it were, things that are more traditional in British universities, more perhaps what you might call left of centre. Um, so you, you want to encourage both. And, and my, my aim, I, I really don't understand it, John, when people say, well, we can't have that person, you know, he'll offend us. You see, as a matter of logic, it seems to me that what's overlooked is that if you've got any more than three or four people around a dinner table, for example, mm. someone is going to feel a bit offended by the conversation, no matter what. By the time you've got 20, you've got no chance of not offending people. Yeah. By the time you've got several thousand people on a university campus, someone is always going to be offended. Yeah. I don't like being offended. But I have to say that I've learnt a great deal occasionally in my life from having my ideas very bluntly challenged. Yeah. My initial reaction was being one of disbelief, pain, yeah. anger. Don't we have to go through those experiences yeah. if we're to build up the character, the resilience, the yeah. find some common ground with other people? Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think it's, it's part of growing up, isn't it? Recognising that you're not always right, that actually Sometimes you could be very, very wrong. Uh, sometimes, or sometimes your argument just will benefit from a little bit of nuance. Mm. Some rush. You might have a debate with someone who, in a sense, that, that phrase moves the Overton window of your ideas further. You don't agree with that person, but you can see, ah, yes, I can concede that point that he or she was making is valid. So your own views shift slightly one way or the other. Um, but yeah, but that's what universities should be about. That's what, that's what, the, that's the purpose of a university education, or at least one of them, is to enable you to explore ideas, for, to enable society to explore ideas where they lead, to enable the institutions of universities to explore ideas, to arrive at an increased knowledge base, to arrive at increased uh, closeness to, to truth, and for you as an individual to understand the virtues of that process. Without this, we're... We're doomed, as Margaret said, what did she say? Like civilizations before us who were eventually thrust aside and dispossessed by more vigorous rivals if we don't embrace freedom. I think she says it already. Good note to end on, but one last question. I remember when I was a university student, an academically inclined older person said to me, the old Irish saying, and quite assertive about it in his own mm. gentle way. Do not judge another person until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Mm. Why is it in this age when we talk so much about tolerance and inclusion and diversity that actually we find it really hard to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and genuinely understand their perspective, the society they live in, their life experiences? Why has it become so hard for us? Any thoughts? 
I mean, the immediate response is that it's, it's hard. It's always been hard. It's, empathy is not the easiest virtue to, to develop. Um, it's always been hard to do that. But at one point in time, we were forced to do that or we were pushed to do that. You know, our parents, our teachers, our lecturers would push us to think these things. Maybe, this is just an initial response to what you're saying, but maybe that pressure is gone now and the pressure from your peers and whatever and yourself is, let's just go the easy route. We don't have to push ourselves. That's an unreflected opinion, uh, you know, unreflective opinion, but it's, it's, it, could be the, it could be part of the answer. Yeah. I'll tell you why I think it's important. Yeah. I think in the West, as we watch what's happening in Russia today, yeah. and when we look at what China's doing and yeah. what the Prime Minister in Australia calls the emergence of an arc of autocracy, we need to actually understand why, it's no use just saying they're offensive, why other people think differently. Yeah, what absolutely. ideologies are driving them? Can yeah. we get inside them well enough to actually understand them? Mm. Why do 80% of people apparently in Russia support what Mr. Putin is doing when we mm. so vehemently reject it? Yeah. Uh, I think in past ages, I remember my lecturers at university being quite insistent that we try and contextualize, right. try and understand yeah. what was really happening. Then you're better able, not only to grapple with it, but to treat with respect those who have a different view. Yeah, I think that's what I was trying to grapple with in, in my answer, yeah. Well, you're about to do some, publish some more work. I'm rather hoping we might be able to talk about it. Is there anything you want to say about that coming work or is it under wraps until it appears? I've got a working title, it's called Forbidden. Yeah. Um, it's about education and uh, yes, I'd love to talk about it. it I, I'm so busy as Vice-Chancellor, I don't have any time to read books, let alone write books, but uh, hopefully in a year or two or perhaps even sooner, yeah. Thank you very much for giving us so generously of your time. No, thank you for inviting me, it's been a great pleasure. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For more content, visit johnanderson.net.au.